you ready to get going? Yeah, sure. All right. Welcome to Ed Leaders, the podcast covering all the interesting ideas about leadership, strategy, culture, and the business of K-12 education. I'm your host, Luke Kelly, and joining me each week in the chair is my co-host and colleague, Matthew Irving. Today's guest is Kathy McLean. Kathy, Kathy, Kathy is, uh, is a partner at Fish and Anchorville and over the past 17 years has developed a reputation as being one of Australia's leading recruiters in education. So without further ado, let's get to it. Kathy, welcome to the Hi. show. Thanks very much. Now, if you just uh, could take the time to have a bit of a chat to us about uh, your journey, uh, I guess, into education and you know executive recruitment um, and, and how that's come to be. Well, it was an entirely accidental one. Uh, I didn't intend to be away from the school that I left in 1989 uh, for all that long. I went to take up a consulting position in the days when the education department in Victoria actually paid for people to be expert consultants to other teachers in a particular geographical area. Um, I was uh, a specialist in English. I was head of English in my school at the time. And uh, so I became responsible for um, uh, P to 12 English and literacy um, programming and outcomes in uh, in a part of Melbourne. And things just sort of snowballed from there. I got um, involved in really interesting work, which turned into the national curriculum work that we know today. I was the co-writer of the English Statement and Profile, which turned into the Australian Curriculum. Uh, I was also involved in the development of what became NAPLAN. Uh, one thing led to another. And uh, actually, I uh, answered an ad in the uh, newspaper in the age one Saturday that said, um, looking for a researcher, a head of research in an executive search firm. And I thought, oh, that sounds interesting, different. I might apply. Next thing I got the job, which was entirely unexpected. And so that um, that was in the year 2000. Um, and so things have kind of gone on from there. Um, I joined Fish and Nankerville in uh, 2004 to start my own practice in the not-for-profit sector. And, of course, I knew more about schools than anything else. So I started to uh, initially in education departments. So I have recruited the director general or CEO or secretary, different names in different states um, of education in most of the states and territories around Australia. I think Western Australia is the only exception, uh, one, the one DG that I didn't recruit. Um, and... Um, and then increasingly in independent schools, as they started to realise um, 10, 15 years ago that uh, there was a lot more to appointing a principal than just putting an ad in the paper and hoping for the best. And, and Kathy, as we sort of zoom out, you know, in education, we have such an impact on our students and over a career, you know, we, we might have impact you know, of, of thousands of students. But in your role as a recruiter, um, if we were to zoom out for a moment and think about the numbers of principals and executives, particularly in education, that you've helped to recruit, you've had an impact of potentially tens of thousands. What are your observations about Great. that? Yeah, it's a really interesting uh, point, and it's something I often think about uh, because I see it as... Um, uh, kind of doing a, a duty to make sure that the very best people are being appointed 
into those senior positions because they are so influential not only on students but on the lives of staff as well. So my goal is to make sure that only really good people are recruited to principal roles and other roles. So most of what I do is um, principals. I think I've done about mm, maybe 60 or so uh, in my career so far and um, a number of deputies, but also heads of junior school, um, a few heads of senior school and a few directors of teaching and learning. They're the main jobs that schools want more expertise in finding because they're such mission-critical roles. And is there a Cathy McLean wall of um, you know, tallies. I mean, we run this sort of tally on enrolments and I've got this image of your office and there's this big whiteboard and you're sort of sort of tallying up, um, you know, your work. <laughs> is, that, is that the case or is that just me dreaming? <laughs> no, I don't have um, my, um, I, I don't do the headhunting thing. I've actually just been reading a book about um, Indonesia, Borneo um, headhunters and uh, how when the Allies were infiltrating Borneo towards the end of the Second World War, they were actually encouraging headhunting again because it was a way of getting uh, lots of uh, Japanese soldiers picked off by the local um, headhunters, literally, as they used to be. Uh, it had been outlawed under British colonial regime. Uh, but what they, uh, what they did was they smoked the heads and then hung them from the beams of the longhouses. So, no, I don't have an equivalent wall. Uh, oh, that, that used to go in a different direction to where I was expecting uh, yeah, it, but was, I like it. That was not what I expected. <laughs> You mentioned before, you know, obviously the impact on students and, and thousands of students, but it's, I guess, more broadly the community and, and the culture of schools and, and what that means for the surrounding areas. Is there anything that you can kind of talk to us about around your process for understanding that community and the culture that surrounds a college in order to best understand the type of leader it needs? Hmm. It's such an important part of the process and takes quite a while. I've discovered that, uh, you know, I'm a competitive sailor, or I used to be, not so much nowadays. Um, and sailors talk about the uh, the five Ps. I won't talk about them because sailors use some bad language, um, but it's basically <laughs> about preparation and performance. And the two are so tightly interlinked. Really good preparation looks after the performance at the end of the day. So you don't think about the result, you think about the process, the preparation and, and so on. Um, and so for me, going into any organisation, but particularly into a school, because a school is not just an organisation, it's also a community. So there's another whole depth and layer of nuance that you need to be aware of. Um, so some of the things that I do are I always visit place and drive or walk around the perimeter of the school because it's interesting to see the, the, the locale because that tells you something about a place. When you think of um, a whole lot of schools, the location that they're in uh, helps you understand the sort of market that they're in and the, the local at least population. Of course, kids come from further away as well, but that's a, a starting point. Um, 
is it new? Is it old? Is it grungy uh, in a kind of inner Western Sydney kind of grungy uh, way, like where Newington is located? You know, that's fascinating, walking the streets around um, that school. It's not necessarily what you'd expect from a grand school, but, of course, the school was built long before the kind of inner uh, suburban um, uh, grunge kind of reached out to surround it. Um, uh, I talk to um, as many people in the school as I'm sort of allowed to or that I have time for. So always talk to the outgoing uh, head if I possibly can um, and the senior leadership team because I'm really conscious as well that you're not just I'm a, helping a school appoint a principal, but the principal is actually the leader of and part of a team of people. So you, I really want to get a feel for that team, um, where their strengths and weaknesses are, where their longevity in the role is, all those sorts of things um, to help me get a feel for the kind of principle that's needed. I read um, as many board papers as the board will permit me to read. Some boards actually give me their board password onto their um, you know, website uh, and uh, say, go for it, read anything you want. And that's really helpful. I really like to read the board papers for an entire year if I can, because that gives me a feel for what's going on in the school um, and the cycle of the year, because we know that schools very much work in that annual cycle and it gives me a feel for various things that happen and as well as the crises that break out from time to time. Um, so getting that the cultural feel of the place is really important, um, as well, of course, as being briefed by the board as to where the school is at this point in time um, because you've got to take into account the history over the longer term, the moment in time at which we find ourselves and where the school wants to go in the next 10 or 15 years, which is the likely uh, tenure of the new principal. And uh, having been part of um, that sort of recruiting process and, and being interviewed, um, I find it lovely that we I'm interviewing the you know, interviewer. Um, and uh, you know, there are, you're, one of the things that you um, have mastery over is language, but also questioning, um, particularly questions um, or generative questions, if you like, that tease out that nuance. Can you give me some sort of examples of the types of questions you ask to really dig uh, to dig deep? Uh, into that that culture of a school and, and where they're at. Mm. So the questions that I typically ask um, the the senior school leaders in particular that uh, I talk to are, what are the things that you would not want to change about this school, and what are the things that you really would like to change? And one of the reasons I really like talking to staff is because they have a much more immediate sense of what the pros and cons of the school are than the board uh, does. The board has a different perspective. They ha usually have their own day jobs, or maybe they're retired, but they often have their own busy day jobs. They're only in the school for maybe a couple of hours a week at the most, whereas the senior leadership team are spending, you know, 40 hours a week or whatever in the school, and uh, they're thinking about it all the time. So they're the people that I really want to get a feel for the school from. And so those two questions are really helpful, particularly about what would you like to change? And sometimes they say, we'd like a, a principal who's more visible. 
sometimes they say, we want a clone of this person because we don't want them to leave. Um, uh, whenever that happens, I always tell the principal concerned because I think that's such wonderful feedback to get. It doesn't happen very often. And so when it does, <laughs> it's, a, it's a fantastic compliment to that person, actually. Um, go sorry, on. go on. No, no, you go. I was going to just ask, you know, how challenging is that when the views of the, the board or the council don't align with what the staff's telling you and how do you then navigate between the two determining, you know, the course of action in terms of the type of yeah. potential leader? It's usually not that they're at odds. It's just that the board doesn't know what's really going on. And there have been a couple of schools where... Um, more than a couple, but a small handful of schools where I've delivered back to the board um, a report that doesn't name names because I always talk one-on-one to the members of the, the team and I say, you know, the conversation that we're having is completely confidential. But if there's anything I feel that the board needs to know in order to be able to recruit the right person, I will pass that information back to them, but I won't identify you as the source unless you want me to identify you as the source. Sometimes people, you know, are happy to, to put their name to the comment. Um, but in that handful of cases, what I've delivered to the board is a, uh, a long list of things that I suspect that they don't know because they haven't briefed me yet on those things. They haven't mentioned those things, therefore I assume that they don't yet know them. And sometimes they have a bit of an inkling, but, you know, because board members aren't supposed to be talking necessarily to senior leadership team members without the principal being there as the interface and these comments pertain to the principal, uh, they they don't have uh, a strong impression of what's really going on. And so... I actually help them, uh, in a sense, understand what's really happening in the school in terms of it might be morale or something like that, um, or a divided staff. And that inkling uh, is probably why you're there. Yeah. Well, uh, in many cases, that's true. Yeah. Mm. Um, here on Ed Leaders, Kathy, we talk a lot about best fit particularly of leaders in, in culture and dynamics and where the school's going and, you know, depending if you, if it's a traditional school or it's a school that's wanting to break into innovation. Um, and no doubt um, in our minds that foundationally to your role is that idea of finding best fit uh, in terms mm-hmm. of a leader. Um, and, and often, you know, you'll see, um, you'll see some great CVs and you go, oh, okay, this is someone I need to talk to but they're not the right fit. Can you just sort of describe to our listeners what, what you believe this idea of best fit is and, and maybe an experience that you could sort of share with us about you see that you see the CV, but ah, it's not right. It's one of the really um, complex things about the job and the reason why I spend so much time learning about the school before reaching out to candidates um, because I don't, I don't like stirring up people's lives. So I'm talking now about the search process where I uh, reach out to somebody whom I either know or know of. Often that would be the case um, when I know someone and think they might be a good fit. It does stir people's lives up because inevitably you go home to your spouse and think, how would you feel about moving to X and, you know, 
that raises a whole lot of questions and it, people already have busy lives and so I don't want to muck them around. So I do spend a lot of time thinking about and thinking about people's personalities as well as their technical competence. And I think um, a lot of people, not enough people think enough about the style and personality fit as well as the technical competence part of the role. You know, they're a deputy principal, therefore they can be a principal because it's the next step. But so much depends on the kind of school, uh, whether it's very traditional or, a, you know, a, a 15-year-old regional school with a completely different kind of um, set of... And how that person's particular individual characteristics might play out. Um, you know, sometimes schools actually need a tremendous um, relationships leader because they've had someone in the head's role who's been a bit more of a technical leader uh, rather than a visible, personable leader. And, you know, I quite often get called into those sorts of um uh, recruitment processes and so no matter how good your resume might look I'm really looking for someone who is highly relational and so that's where you get that question of fit. I sometimes see it also in when I'm looking for people in regional schools because uh, being head of a school in a region so in a place like I don't know um Wagga, which I'm doing at the moment in New South Wales or Bendigo or somewhere like that, Albany in WA, etc. Um, you're not just the head of the school community, you're actually a really important part of a community uh, of, you know, 20,000 people or 60,000 people or in the case of Canberra, which is kind of midway between a, a regional community and a big city because it is the capital city. Um, That's a small town. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Don't give me that, please. Come on. Not like Adelaide. It's a real city, Matt. Well, Don't worry. Canberra's almost a city, but it's never going to be quite a city. I'm just going to I'll own that. I'll leave that there. Oh, dear, oh, dear. Um, you know, you, I think the same is true of Adelaide, even though it's a bigger place than Canberra. Now, 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 now. There's a certain regional feel about it. I actually said that um, at an Ahisa, um, at the Ahisa conference a couple of years ago, and uh, Carolyn Grantskelms, who's an Adelaide uh, woman from a long way back, said, regional city, Kathy, come on. I would say the same thing, regional city, Adelaide. <laughs> Love it. But you do, I think the important things in that case is to realise that just as important as being the principal is being the representative of the school at Rotary, at Lyons, on the, the local city council, because almost anything that you do with the school is going to involve your local council in terms of, you know, parking and planning and traffic and all that kind of stuff, buses, accessibility, etc. So you need to have really build good relations with them, but you'll see them at social events as well and you'll be their next door neighbour, etc., etc. So your visibility in the community and your enjoyment of being part of the community is definitely a major factor uh, in my thinking about who might be a good fit for that aspect of the role. So if you're naturally a very shy and retiring type 
and you feel like you could run a school okay, that's one part of the job. But the other part of the job is that bigger, broader, representational job. And it's important that you feel like you want to do that bit of the job because if you don't, it's exhausting. And when you're living in a regional town, you don't want to spend half your life thinking, oh, my goodness, that person walking towards me is going to want to talk to me about something or other and let me just cross the road so I don't have to have that conversation. (laughs) Uh, I mean, everybody will probably do that at some point because they're feeling tired or whatever, but you have to really enjoy that part of the job to be a good fit in a regional community. So it's an additional aspect of that question of fit. I guess one question I've got around, I guess, as a candidate, understanding that is you know, we've got all these types of technology that we that we now have, podcasting, videos, you know, lots of different formats of communication. It would seem that many schools still play in the, the standard job ad, you know, maybe three to 500 words. For, um, you know, some schools, they're going towards this brochure format of, you know, maybe six to eight to 12 pages of kind of background and information. Is there anything that you think's on the horizon? You know, we, we've had some discussions around this, but that's going to be, I guess, more depth for a, a potential candidate to kind of get a real understanding of, you know, the nuance of like what you've just described with a regional school or, you know, Newington, for example, and and being just down the road from a from a grungy area. Anything that you're that you're thinking from a recruitment practice that you could use technology better for? Well, one of the things that I always ask for when I uh, put out a, a, a candidate brief and say this, these are the instructions or the hints um, for how to present a good application, I always ask nowadays for a video to be included because I, I, many years ago um, uh, a board member just happened to say once when we were sitting down looking at a bundle of applications it's so hard trying to assess these people off the page. Of course, that's one of the reasons they also use me because they know that I uh, may have known them for a while at the very least. If I didn't know them previously, I've now sat down with them and met the candidates and all that kind of thing. So I can pass on my impressions of what the candidate is like. But the board member was saying if only we could have a sense of that before we make the final decision about the shortlist. And I thought, yeah, that's such a good point. Why don't we get videos up and actually there are some really good technologies that are being made available nowadays. Um, I did inquire into whether it would be possible for a candidate along with their application to actually do a little video to the board to introduce themselves. So as well as the written application, here's a little video of me. Um, It's really the technology at the moment, as I last looked into it probably about five years ago, and perhaps it's moved on since then, but the technology was really designed for um, big banks and things like that, doing a lot of uh, A, offshore, and B, bulk recruiting at a particular level. And so they were using that almost instead of a, a standard resume. Uh, and what they were, therefore, the provider of the technology was charging uh, a very large fee for as a kind of annual license. Well, I wasn't going to pay that because that would just uh, kill my um, uh, my profit margin, if you like. But um, I did think, well, you know, most schools do lots of videos for various things. And this is, of course, even pre-COVID. There's a lot more stuff now on video that's available because people have been 
you know, videoing themselves and and uh, uh, putting it up on school websites by way of information and so on. Um, and it's been really very interesting uh, to um, to see the videos that people put up. Um, there was one video that a, a candidate for a principal role put up. She was already a principal and she um, participated in Shave uh, for a Cure and she agreed to be shaved in the maiden quadrangle of the school in front of the entire school and shaved right back to kind of number one uh, uh, and uh, and this went up on the on the school's website, and so she contributed that. She just provided the URL in the application, and the board, when they looked at that, said, "That's the sort of person that we want. The sort of person who's able to get down and dirty with the kids in a way to show that they're really human, to show that you can." you know, engage in a way in self-sacrifice and almost a sense of not quite humiliation, but, you know, you're very, Honorable. especially when you're a woman, and, yeah, it's about vulnerability. What a, a good way of putting it. Thanks, Matt. Yep. Uh, and uh, that um, was something that that board really responded to, and she ended up getting the job. So that was uh, that was very interesting. And another one where the the video was really um, important was someone who was applying from overseas, so the, the client couldn't meet her at all. I had met her in Australia previously, but she was applying for this particular job from overseas. I'd approached her about it. And uh, she said, I don't have much in the way of videos um, because our school doesn't do much of this, but I did video my presentation to an incoming Year 11 IB class because they not everybody in year 11 could actually come to the meeting so I got someone to video the meeting and the way she dealt with the students the way she talked to them and the way she even dealt with the latecomers who walked into the room after the appointed uh, starting time was so authentic um, and a, a really nice mixture of um, the instructional the receptive the firm the the warm uh, you know, she really showed a range of ways of dealing with students and the principal, so this was for a, a role reporting to a principal rather than a principal role, um, the principal looked at that and said, that's the kind of person I want who has the sort of person who can speak like that um, with students. So the choice of video um, has actually had a, a big impact on some of my uh recruitment experiences. And Kathy, as we sort of think about the candidate, that's sort of a great way of sort of segueing into more discussions about the ideal candidate. As we sort of, um, well, a great friend of, of the show is Alan Shaw, um, and he often yeah. talks about the duality of being a CEO, the Chief Education Officer and the Chief Executive Officer. So as we sort of zoom out and think about candidates, um, to what extent do they, they understand the responsibilities that come with both of those hats and um, you know to what extent um, can some of those things be learned on the job but all those things that actually have to be foundational from day one mm. well you know this is uh one of the the great questions in uh school leadership at the moment um i compare schools and indeed a lot of other not-for-profit organizations probably most not-for-profit organizations with what happens in business. And there's an enormous gap. Um, 
educators often don't learn much except about education. And you compare that to people who work for BHP or Unilever or one of the big, you know, corporations. The people, people with promise are picked out at a pretty early stage and given the beginnings of not only management responsibility but also management training. Whereas the reality most of the time in education is that people learn on the job. They tend to also learn fairly late because probably most of the first 10 years of your career, um, you'll be mainly teaching. And so you'll be managing kids, you'll be mastering the craft, uh, both of teaching per se and in the subject area. Um, and after that time, you start taking on um, leadership responsibility and being responsible, therefore, for people. Um, I know that there's a, a headmaster somewhere in Australia at the moment who started life in engineering and was already managing 10 people by the end of his first sort of four years in the job um, in a really responsible uh, safety critical area. And so he, at the end of five years, was already used to having hard conversations with people, checking on performance, that kind of thing, the adult management part of leadership. Whereas most teachers after five years have done no management of adults at all, apart from parents, which is a different kind of which management. Which is a different thing altogether. <laughs> um, and, and so then we sort of um, expect school leaders to just learn what it is to be a good manager of people by osmosis and by good luck. And then we throw them into senior roles and wonder why half of the heads of department in a school don't really manage their departments very well and uh, aren't managing their, their uh, staff very helpfully because they've never been taught how to. And sometimes uh, people can even be in deputy roles and still not have very much staff management responsibility. This is something that I think really needs to change. Um, how you do it, I don't know, because it's not being done well anywhere. Uh, I mean, the, the closest that I see um, happening is the um, programs like uh, I think AISWA is running a principal preparation program nowadays um, probably AIS New South Wales with their flagship program was perhaps the first one. Um, the uh, Queensland is running a good program at the moment, etc. Um, to give people a bit more of a, a training, but it's still very much in the education space. A lot of what you can learn is actually applicable to any organisation and uh, uh I think, you know, my own experience of doing an MBA was, um, it was after I'd already left schools, but that taught me so much um, about the whole business of managing a, a business, which is, after all, what an independent school in particular is about. Um, so that's where you end up with, you know, you're responsible for the educational leadership of the, the school. Uh and you're also responsible for the business leadership and management of the school. Um, you have plenty of experience on the education side, not a lot of experience on the management side. And I think one of the biggest traps for young principals, first-time principals, to fall into is to think, oh, well, the business manager can deal with all of that. But that's 
an abrogation of responsibility and it's also um, a shifting of the power base in the school. I mean, that sounds crass, but it's true. I have heard about some very difficult situations that have arisen because the business manager hasn't seen themselves as reporting to the principal in the end, but they've had their own sphere of responsibility and often business managers do have a dual reporting line into both the principal and the um, and the board. And so they see themselves really as reporting directly to the board and the principal knows nothing about finance, therefore can be kind of sidelined from consideration. So that leads to a complexity in the management of the school that a principal doesn't really need. But sometimes bring it on themselves by saying, oh, I don't know much about that finance stuff or marketing or anything else. I'll just leave it to that guy over there uh, who can do it. But that's dangerous to do. Now, I like that... uh that you brought up the fact that someone had a background in engineering. And I also like the fact that you brought up that someone has an MBA. Uh, so as a fellow uh, MBA, <laughs> Congratulations, um, I have a view on this, uh, but I'm, I'm interested in, in your view, uh, particularly around the masters. And, and we've talked about this before on the show as well, just around that difference between what you're seeing, I guess, trending towards in the future around the masters of education versus an MBA and, and the, and the mm-hmm. different set of skills that you get from those two um, degrees. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, when any, whenever anyone asks my opinion, I always say do an MBA. And I see that as being much, much more helpful and valuable in the long term. Um, it gives a, gives you a couple of things. First of all, a perspective outside education, uh, which is incredibly important because most people in education went to school, went to university, and then went back to school, and uh, that's. It's not enough of a, an understanding of the world that your parents come from, that your board comes from, and that your students will go into. And I think that's a, a, a tragedy, uh, really. You'd love to do something about that in terms of giving people possibilities and options outside the classroom at a point so that they can bring it back uh, to help enrich the the variety of experiences that you provide. But just from a practical point of view and thinking about being a head or being an aspirational head, it also gives you the language to talk to board members, uh, both in interviews and as the principal, Uh, and particularly to make sure that that power balance, apologies once again for sounding crass, but the the power balance between the principal and the business manager. you have to know, you don't have to be an expert in accounting and to be able to balance a ledger and all that kind of stuff, but you need to know, as MBAs always say, you need to know the questions to ask um, and you need to know enough to know when you're being snowed um, by the board or by the business manager or by the IT guy as well. That's very sexist, isn't it? The IT person. Um, uh, so that's one of the reasons why um, I, well, there are two of the reasons why I advocate for MBAs. Um, one is to get a wider view of the world and the other is to um, get that, uh, be able to learn the language and to develop an interest in business. Business has a lot to teach schools. You know, when you're thinking about market segmentation, for example, which every school should be thinking about in terms of it's where it's, promoting itself and the kind of offering that it's giving, you know, you need to understand um, the principles of consumer marketing. 
And uh, that's a subject in almost every MBA. You don't have to do an MBA to learn about it. You can go and buy a textbook and read your way through it, but it's more interesting to do it as part of a class and to have sitting alongside you people who have been trained in consumer marketing at Unilever where they start on day one. Uh, you know, these are the, the this is the value proposition of our products, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, to help you think about those things. Um, and be more expert in your own school. And what the, the picture you're painting for us, Kathy, is that concept that we spoke about before of technical competence. You know, you need a level of, of technical competence and, and there's lots of different ways of doing that, as you just described. MBA is a great place to do that. Company directors course is a great way of doing that. But also shadowing people is probably a good example too. And I just on, I was just sort of reflecting as we we're talking about technical competency um, you know, uh, headed myself, brought in a head of department um, and, you know, showed them how to do a recruitment process in you know, that was authentic, it was real, but also, um, you know, how to straighten someone up and what a performance conversation looks like. And it's interesting how many, I guess, heads of department or aspirant leaders have not ever seen um, a recruitment process happen, a performance conversation happen, um, a termination happen. Um, they're things that they don't have experiences of. So do you see there's a space um, for, I guess, principals and boards to, to bring some of those middle leaders on in, and show them what those experiences look like? Yeah, I think that's a, a fantastic opportunity that um, some principals really take on as part of their uh, responsibilities to help breed the next generation of leaders. Um, you need a generous principle to do that because, uh, of course, it takes time and also involves admitting people into the inner sanctum. And there are some people who don't like doing that, who would prefer to be the sole controller of uh, information coming out of the school or coming down from the board. You know, it does take um, a lot of confidence in your own identity and and expertise and also the willingness to, of course, admit that you don't have all the answers. When I think about school leadership, a lot of it is exactly what we talk about in classes. You know, as a, a good teacher, will never pretend that they know all the answers. They will be vulnerable and, and or therefore authentic. They'll admit what they don't know. They'll also admit when they're wrong. These are key attributes of leaders. But although most people recognise that nowadays in terms of their practice in classrooms, they sometimes find it difficult to translate into practice in leadership. Absolutely. And leadership of adults is a whole, you know, field uh, it's, uh, unto itself. So, I mean, there's many fabulous books written about this and, uh um, you know, the Harvard uh, Business Review and all those sorts of things carry um, learned uh, articles and practical articles uh, about it applying in business. I think uh, a lot of those things can be absolutely uh, fascinating. I um, <clears throat> recently saw that uh, Ross Trevor College in Adelaide and, and, more, and also here in Perth, Guildford Grammar, um, have appointed female principals uh, for the first time in their history. Um, and I don't know, our sense of it is that sometimes gender still gets, uh, you know, there's this lingering kind of issue around uh, gender of, of the leader in single sex schools. I guess, what are your observations and the pragmatic realities that you're seeing, um, you know, in 2021? And, and where do you think that might be in, in 2030? 
Oh, that's such a, a huge uh, question. I could make so many comments about it, including the observation that when Western Australia and Victoria were both in trouble back in the early 90s, uh, the, the parties in power at the time both elected female um, uh, heads of the female leaders who became premiers, um, Carmen Lawrence in uh, Western Australia and Joan Kerner in Victoria. In other words, all the all the people in the party, most of them the blokes, said, oh, we're in such a terrible uh, shtuk at the moment. Let's uh, put a woman in charge. She can take all the flack. She'll get voted out at the next election because the voters will be so dissatisfied. There's a huge amount of sexism that happens still in society, and uh, I often think about those examples of uh, female leaders of political parties and uh, premiers and uh, Julia Gillard's uh, almost uh, another example of that. I think what... Um, it's an interesting thing, you know, there have been male principals of girls' schools since time immemorial. The advent of female heads of boys' schools is a completely different uh, phenomenon and um, uh, it's a pity that there's that lack of uh, parallel uh, uh, experience. Um, I had, well, I was involved in um, Anne's appointment at Guildford uh, and I was also involved in the appointment of Deborah Barker at um, St Kevin's uh, last year. So another very traditional boys' school um, who appointed their first uh, female head. Um, I think there's um, uh, a growing awareness that there is the need to consider not just the old boys and what they might say, and almost always these appointments do result in some withdrawals from the school. Shameful to say, but I know for a fact that it happens. You know, you get probably 10 or 15 parents who say it's disgraceful, should be a man, and I'm withdrawing my son. Uh, so there you go. Fascinating uh, uh, thing to happen. Um, I think it's really about being the best person for the job and um, you know, there was no question in those experiences that I've had direct experience of. It wasn't because they were female that they were appointed. It was really because they were the best person for the job. I think there is, um, uh, you know, an awareness in some schools that uh, in co-educational schools that there's been, you know, every principal they've ever had has been male even though it's a co-educational school. And what does that say to the women in the school, both the, the female uh, staff and also the girls uh, and their parents, about how this school um, values um, leadership uh, regardless of your sex? So uh, there's there are a number of co-ed schools who say, we think it might be time to seriously consider a female leader. So we would really like to see good women on your list. Now, that then raises a whole lot of other questions. The list should just be the list, shouldn't it? How many good women are you going to be able to get on your list? Because there's a couple of things there. When I ring uh, a good woman, uh, senior leader, and say, how would you like to move to, for example, Western Australia? There's this fabulous school, you know, and so on and so forth. Uh, and the first thing that 
that person usually says is, I don't know, my children, I don't know that how they would go with a move. Um, you know, my husband's got an important job. I just don't know whether I could do it to my family. Uh, and some men say that, but not as many as the women. Um, and, look, I hope that doesn't sound uh, sexist in the wrong way to the people who are listening to this, but it is absolutely my experience of what happens. And you also get the classic female thing of, oh, do you really think I could do a principal job? Do you really think I could be a principal? Golly, <laughs> you know. Uh, so there's a certain reluctance also to put themselves forward, a certain lack of confidence that um, some people feel. Um so there's uh, some interesting um, barriers to getting women onto um, those um, long lists and then through to the short list. It's really interesting you talk about that that sense of confidence. Um, just mm-hmm. recently involved in in some recruiting, and you know they've got the technical competencies, they've got the relationships, but there's this piece around sort of confidence. Do you really think that I could do this? I'm like, yeah, you can do this and more. Um, you know, just um, and is that a, a response to, you know, a, a social construct that's been created, you know, in education? Mm. And I just, um, you know, I can't help think that you know we we, we need to, we definitely need to shift that. Um, but it's just struck me, sort of, sort of, um, you know, particularly in this example that I'm sharing with you, is that that sense of confidence. I was made aware of that right back when I first became a head of department and I had, just by coincidence, a woman who was you know, 15 years older than me coming back into teaching after seven or so years out on maternity leave. She was the most nervous member of my staff in that, in that year uh, because although she was incredibly experienced, she'd been out for those years and she had completely lost her confidence. And I, as the young much younger person in that relationship had to help her rebuild her confidence in just in teaching, let alone in management. So it's really, I think a lot of people forget that women in particular have that period um, of either part-time work or no work while they're in their childbearing and child-raising years. And sometimes I do get boards uh, say, you know, why have they been at this school for such a long time? And actually it's because they were working part-time while they were having and raising the kids in their early years uh, and didn't want to move because it was close to home. The staff at the school knew the person and were willing to make various um, sacrifices on her behalf because they knew what a valuable staff member she was and she couldn't sort of just up sticks and go to a promotion position uh, while she was doing all that work at home. So uh, it's a it's a really complicated question. I'm assuming that, um, you know, when it gets down to the last two candidates, there often must be some very close calls uh, to yep. be made. And I, I guess I'm, I'm wondering if you could kind of describe an experience where it's been super close and 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 a decision has been made one way or the other. And and what was the, you know, the driving decision, you know, factor there? Mm-hmm. And I guess as a follow-up to that, you know, in those circumstances, do you stay connected with the chair and the board and kind of how long do you stay connected with the board to ensure that you that you feel comfortable that it ended up being the right person? Mm. Often it's a case, I will answer your question, but just that last bit, often it's a case of 
um, hearing how the person is going from other people, not necessarily the chair uh, or even the person themselves. So, you know, I often ask people when I'm talking to them who are in a neighbouring school, for example, how do you think so-and-so is going? Uh, and uh, they'll give me a really interesting feedback because it's from the point of view of uh, a competitor school or maybe a sister school or, or whatever. Um, look, the um, the most dramatic uh, incident that I've ever witnessed uh, is when a board member resigned over the over the final choice. They actually said, "Well, in that case, I'm resigning." Got up and walked out. Okay. Uh, they were the only. Um, uh, opposing voice uh, in the choice of that particular person. And the key issue was the issue of faith. So there were two candidates, one clearly better than the other, uh, but the other candidate had very strong church credentials and it was a church school. Um, and for that reason, and that reason alone, one board member wanted to appoint that person rather than the person who did get the job. And uh, that was a very interesting thing to um, to observe. I mean, when you were talking before earlier in this um, meeting about uh, the sort of preparation that you do, one of the first questions I have learned to ask, partly as a result of that experience, is tell me about your faith expectations. So does this person need to be a card-carrying member of a particular church? Uh, and sometimes the answer is absolutely yes, and it's best that I know that because then I say to them, well, if that's the case, you need to make that clear in the advertisement and in the candidate brief because otherwise it's not fair uh, to people. And so, you know, to name one example, um, uh, a school that I was working with recently um, in their constitution, it says that the person, the principal must be Protestant. And I knew that quite a few potential candidates that I knew of um, were Catholic. And I said to the school, so you do have the right to do that under the law um, and uh, you should make it clear in the advertisement. And uh, one of my Catholic friends texted me, uh, principal of a Catholic school, and said, I've never seen it put so nicely. Catholics need not apply, <laughs> which made me laugh. <laughs> but, of course, he also recognises that was very tongue-in-cheek because Catholic schools make it very, very clear. Well, Non-Catholics need not apply. Mm -hmm. uh, that's just uh, completely understood. In other schools, even faith-based schools, it really doesn't matter at all. Um and in some schools, there are great differences. So the Anglican um, communion in Australia actually has very different sub-branches. Uh, and, you know, people talk about Sydney Anglicans versus Melbourne Anglicans, etc. cetera. Um, there are differences, uh, including their acceptance of female leadership. We know that um, in Sydney, uh, you don't, you can't be ordained as a priest if you're a woman. So, you know, these things do make a difference in the attitudes and uh, um, and approaches that the board will accept. And Kathy, sort of, as they um, sort of you know think about those the, the, the kind of the candidate and faith and, and those sorts of things, have you seen a board shift in the process 
where they they've said one thing to you and then they've actually met the candidates and then gone, yeah. actually, we want this profile now. Yeah, well, I've seen a couple of things. Um, I've definitely seen that. Uh, sometimes the school says, well, we absolutely must have an experienced uh, principal. Um, and then they um, they like the look of someone who's a bit younger. And when they meet that person, they are completely blown away by the person's youthfulness, vitality. They say they, they, they are aware that there's a whole layer of gaps in that person's knowledge and experience. But... You know, it's a bit like we appoint this person, uh, there are 7 out of 10 principal at the moment and in five years' time they'll be an 8 out of 10 principal. If we appoint this person, they're probably a 6 out of 10 principal at the moment, but in five years' time they'll be a 10 out of 10. So being aware of that is one of the things that I need to be conscious of in the in the process, trying to get a feel uh, from the board for that. Uh, and I recently encouraged someone to apply who was a bit in that kind of currently probably six out of ten uh, level um, who, um, uh, you know, did extremely well in the process. So uh, it is interesting to, to see that. And, Cathy, as we sort of come to an end of our conversation, which has been fascinating um, and, and quite insightful, what, what might be your sort of last words of wisdom for aspirant leaders um, going forward? Oh, golly, there's, um, you know, reams that could be uh, written and uh, hours that could well, be... Well, that's a podcast uh, in itself yeah. almost, isn't it? <laughs> well, absolutely, yeah, exactly. Um, I think making a, a couple of things that are really obvious. When a recruiter puts their telephone number on the ad, do not send an email. That is just, like, really dumb. Sorry if anyone out there has ever done that, but... <laughs> But, you know, you are being invited to telephone, particularly if the person's mobile is on the ad, which mine always is. And I'm bemused at, and sometimes uh, I go back to them and say, so why didn't you ring me? Oh, I, I live overseas. And I say, so what? <laughs> there are telephones in, yes, you know, Singapore right. or. Are you or, that cheap that you can't afford an international phone call? Especially nowadays. I mean, they're about tuppence halfpenny each, really, or email and say, can we set up a Zoom mm. rather than just, you know, email and please send me the candidate brief. Um, can I just text you, Cathy? Yeah. I, just, I just like text. <laughs> it is really, uh, I mean, How are you doing? I laugh about it in a way, but it's a serious point because is. You, are, you have the opportunity to talk to the person who has met the board, visited the school, you know, all that kind of stuff, why wouldn't you want to have a conversation with that person and find out what they know um, and get their impression straight away on whether you might be a feasible candidate or not? Sometimes people ring and I'm, I'm usually very honest and say, look, I really don't think this is going to be for you. But part of that is judgment about how I feel the person might react to that uh, comment. And sometimes I don't say it and think, mm, maybe I should, maybe I should have. I think it's worthwhile candidates always saying, what do you think about my fit? You know, now that I've told you a bit about me or you already know me, um, what do you think about my fit? And in that case, I've given the invitation to be uh, completely honest. Um, 
I think letters uh, of application for a principal role, oh, golly, so many of them are, forgive me again, uh, but really boring. Um, and you don't want your board, your prospective employer, to be bored. Um, remember that your career is set out in the CV part of your application. The letter should be personal. And it shouldn't just be, I'm a deputy, so therefore I'm ready to be principal, because that's all about you. The board is interested not in you, in a sense. I mean, they are, but you know what I mean. The board is interested in getting the right person for the school. So what you should be thinking about in writing the letter is, so what is it that characterises this school? What are the issues they've got? If they've received one of my candidate briefs, I'll have received a very honest appraisal of that. And so presenting yourself in a way that says, I'm the solution to the kind of strategic issues or the practical problems that you have at the moment, um, and these are the reasons why, um, making it really personal. Because so many letters that you receive, you can just tell that they've had, uh, you know, X school um, removed in a find-replace exercise and this school inserted because the whole of the rest of the letter would be identical from one school to another. And that's not smart at the end of the day. It's not a way to advance your cause. I can't imagine it would be. <laughs> <laughs> Look, as we close out, I've got a, uh, we've got our last segment, and I've changed the name again, Matt. Oh, no. We've got five and 50. Five and 50? Yeah, five and 50 seconds. All right, I'm going to time you. <laughs> all right. Uh, here we go, Cathy. One trait all leaders must have. Honesty. Uh, honesty in terms of themselves, knowing what you're good at and what you're not good at and therefore need support with, honesty to own up when you've made a mistake and honesty in your relationships with others. In other words, telling people where they're going wrong and what they need to fix, even though that's a really difficult thing to do. One trait all recruiters must have. <laughs> Maybe honesty as well, actually. <laughs> Good answer. Good answer. Uh, what does principal success look like? Oh, a passionate staff and kids who love, love coming to school and a board that believes in you. Mm. Absolutely. Uh, this is a good one. One book worth reading and why? Huh. Well, the best book I've ever read uh, is The Left Hand of Darkness by Ursula Le Guin. Uh, Le Guin uh, is originally an anthropologist and she writes about people from a kind of what if. She writes sort of science fiction. It, what if? And The Left Hand of Darkness is the, predicated on this assumption there is no firm sex in this society. All men are also women and all women are also men. And she imagines a society where anyone can become pregnant, therefore, at any time because anyone can be male or female depending on, she describes it as depending on the phases of the moon or something like that, I think. Um, and her ex exploration then is how does that change society? It's an absolutely fascinating wow and beautifully written novel. She's one of the most beautiful writers ever. I think I can tell that you're an ex-English teacher. Yep. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and uh, one person that we should interview on the podcast. Oh, um, maybe Deborah Barker at um, St Kevin's. 
first ever female principal of that school and St Kevin's has been in a really, really difficult place, you know, on the front page of The Age every day last year, just about, um, and really uh, doing a tremendous job there at the moment. All right, just to close us out today, Cathy, um, I guess what continues to motivate you uh, where you're at in your mm-hmm. career? And I guess uh, if people are interested in connecting with you, how, how do you suggest they do that in an authentic way that's not a text message that says, how you doing, K-Money, you know, uh, <laughs> you know where, they, where you think they want something? <laughs> um, look, I really enjoy um, meeting people who are up-and-comers. The difficulty is that, so often I'm just absolutely flat to the boards like I am at the moment. I've got a ridiculous amount of work on and it's nearly always like that, so it's a bit of potluck. I really like people who ring up and and uh, take the chance. Just give me a call. My phone number's on our website. Um, and if it's not a convenient time to have a chat, I'll tell them and uh, we can arrange another time and even better, a Zoom call. Um, But a telephone contact in the first instance is a really nice um, thing to do. In terms of the first part of your question, what motivates me, it actually goes back to the beginning of uh, this discussion which you when you were talking about the thousands of people that you can influence, the hundreds of thousands of students, the thousands of staff um, by making sure that schools appoint really good people into the right roles. Um, I love that work. And look, there are very few jobs that you can do where you talk almost entirely to the most interesting people. My days are just full of talking to fabulous people uh, like your two good selves. Oh, um, too kind, Kathy, too kind. <laughs> <laughs> truly, that is uh, an incredibly motivating aspect of the work. Look, uh, Kathy, again, thanks for uh, taking the time to be on the show. I guess that brings an end uh, to our conversation for today. I know you've got lots of things to get on with. Uh, to the audience, I hope you've enjoyed our chat uh, on school leadership and recruitment with Kathy. I know I particularly have picked up, uh, uh, you know, a few interesting things in, in that that with your background in English, I will get my grammar right if I ever put in an application. I will make the phone call first. Um, and I really kind of enjoyed that kind of conversation around, you know, how can leaders best develop, you know, in a school system. Um, and that kind of interesting thing that you just were kind of talking about before around, can you be a five or a six out of 10, but can you get to be a 10 out of 10, you know, in, along the journey? And my insights today um, have been, and I like a good frame, you know, so you do love a good the framework. Five, the five P's of the sailor, which we'll, we won't get to, to know what the, the fourth and fifth or sort of the three, <laughs> four and five are. But for me, um, you know, process, preparation and people are the three things that have really uh, struck me today um, and are very grateful for the conversation. Kathy, on behalf of the audience, uh, thank you again um, and for talking about the reality of the, uh, you know, the ups and downs of job applications and recruitment. It's something that all school leaders, you know, go through, uh, you know, during their careers. So I'm sure what you've shared today is going to be invaluable for the audience. And Matt, I think my guess is that this may be one of the highest listen to episodes that we've ever done. People are going to want to know this. People are wanting to, to listen um, to this um, because of the insights part shows people what the journey is going to look like in the future. Remember, if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show and uh, don't forget to share the love and tell a few of your colleagues that you've listened to this great podcast called Ed Leaders. You can also head over to edleaders.com.au or follow Ed Leaders on LinkedIn. Um, and if you haven't already, please connect with Matt and I. And I guess they can also connect with you on LinkedIn other than a phone call, Thank Kathy. You. 
Well, I, I don't accept uh, generally um, invitations to connect on LinkedIn until I know a person. So I'm um, going back to the phone call, et cetera, is always the best um, place to start. I love it. Um, and if you've got any questions out there, you've got some feedback for us, uh, please send it through. We, we love hearing from the audience. Uh, and if you found some value, uh, please share the link to this episode on LinkedIn as we really want to continue to grow the podcast and it motivates us to produce you know, some more great content. We've got a lot of great ideas in the future about uh, how we can connect our audience. Matt, any closing comments? No, not at all. It's just fine. The conversation today has been great, um, really insightful and a great joy to be with Kathy today. Thanks, Kathy. Thank you so much. And congratulations to you two for um, inventing such a terrific idea and for putting the work into it. Uh, amazing. Great job. Thank you, Kathy. Really appreciate that. Thanks again for listening and we'll catch you next week. Go well.